You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, everyone. My name is John Spiracevet, and I'm here with Jeff Middleman. Hey, Jeff. Hi, John. Nice to see you again. Good to see you. And uh, for everyone, welcome to season three of The Good Place. Everything is bonzer, which I guess is Australian for, for really good. <laughs> it's know- right. it's not just fine. Everything is everything is bonzer. <laughs> which kind of sounds like bonkers, like I thought, but I guess doesn't mean that at all. <laughs> And uh, it is great to start a new season. And, and with you, Jeff, remind us where you are situated in Jewish life. So I am the founding director of Sinai and Synapses, which bridges the worlds of religion and science. And we explore lots of different questions, everything from astrophysics to psychology, to genetic engineering, to environmental science, from both a religious perspective and a scientific perspective to try to help elevate the discourse and explore some of the biggest questions that we face in this world. Or, or as I might say, you are the love child of Simone and Chidi if, if <laughs> they had a Jewish child. <laughs> I, I would I would be very honored to think yes. That's... <laughs> and, and I haven't reintroduced myself by location in a while on the podcast. I serve as the rabbi of Jewish community in and around Nashua, New Hampshire, in every direction. Our community is called Beth Abraham. Later on in this season, we're going to find out from the Good Place Committee in charge that uh, it might require 400 years to vet conflicts of interest among investigators. And uh, my institution has become a a grantee of your institution. Very excited about that. Temple Beth Abraham is a grantee for scientists and synagogues. But I assure everybody that that will not influence my... uh, I will not go any more soft on Jeff in our conversation because <laughs> because of that. Yeah, and, none of and, this is none of it's flowing into my pocket. And the same thing here. We actually is is we had independent reviewers who were looking at all the different applications as well. So so there was no conflict of interest here as well. That's right. It all went down since we did the episode last season together. So. Yeah. So I should ask you, since this is the beginning of season three, we each get a chance to maybe revise our answer. You were on the podcast before. As which of the main characters do you think you're most like? And I, you you could probably put Simone in there if you. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I still think that I'm very cheaty because I deal with a lot of indecision. But there is an element of Simone, for sure, of the skepticism and trying to be able to, to at, realize what are the questions that we need to ask. And I also tend to be a very enthusiastic person about the things that I love. And she she clearly loves life. She's I remember her saying she was so excited to get all these brains in the MRI <laughs> that we'll talk about in, in, in a few minutes. The enthusiasm is also that I, I identify with that as well, for sure. So for those who are going to, you know, bet money on this season on who all the hosts, you know, think they are, are you going to classify yourself as a Simone or a Chidi? I am still going to classify myself as, as I would say, probably 75% Chidi <laughs> and 25% Simone, somewhere <laughs> in that range. All right. and, and who would you want to be more like? Mm. There is something valuable about Jason that I like of just being able to just do what you're going to do and just find the joy in everything that you're doing. And, and you know, even if things totally implode, like it's all going to be good. That's uh, just not a very Jewish perspective, in, in my opinion. But but that there's there's a there's a balance. We'll talk about. I know we're going to talk about Rambam in a in a few minutes. But like, you know, the moderation, I think, is really. Helpful. <laughs> 
Yes, I guess Jason doesn't have that. No, that's that's interesting. Jason is the guilty pleasure, I think, of many Jewish educators. And uh, last season, you had him as your backup choice, but uh, that's great. Go go full in. I've been thinking to see if I could reassess because both seasons so far, I said I really was a cheaty and. I was trying to think of who else could I be, and I definitely love the philosopher part of Chidi and the the philosopher teacher part. And though I might thought of, am I a Michael in any way? I don't think I can can rock that. So I'm gonna stick with Chidi. And and then who do I wish I was more like? I think I'm still gonna stick with Janet. Just you know knowledgeable, help trying so hard, even when frustrated, to be kind and engaged and learn as much as possible about others' needs. Jason is tempting <laughs> for reasons we'll talk about. And Michael is tempting too. I think if I were taller, I might, especially as Michael has come into his own as a person who uh, who always has to talk himself into confidence before taking charge and stepping in, I might identify that. But I'll stick with my more cheaty now, more Janet in the future. <laughs> So we are launching into season three. And Jeff, do you want to give us a summary of this two-part season premiere? Everything is Bonzer, which is chapters 27 and 28. Part one was written by Jen Statsky and Michael Shore. Part two was written by Jen Statsky. And both parts were directed by Dean Holland. So to to test the claim that the humans have actually changed, the judge authorizes Michael to travel to Earth, where he saves Eleanor, Chidi, Jason, and Tahani's lives and wipes their memories of anything that happened when they were together. Michael and Janet monitor their progress on the four ticker tape machines. Each one reforms for a time after their near-death experience, but eventually they all revert to their old patterns. Chidi meets a neuroscientist at his university named Simone, who he hopes will help him fix his brain from indecision. With Eleanor's encouragement, they begin dating, and Chidi pitches Simone on a joint research project melding philosophy and neuroscience to study the effect of near-death experiences on ethical decision-making. Michael believes the humans all need to be together, so he tricks the doorman into allowing him to reuse his past down to Earth and poses as a series of characters to nudge Jason and Tahani to travel to Australia and join the study. Sean discovers what Michael and Janet have been doing and sends Trevor down to Earth to join the study and sabotage everything. Well, there's there's a lot of business going on in a season premiere, and I did think it was just amazing that in the season two premiere, it was all about trying to keep these four humans apart, and no matter what happened in 800 plus reboots, they always seem to find each other, and particularly Eleanor and Chidi. And in this one, Michael's trying to get them together, and mm-hmm. uh, and there are all these impediments. Uh, so are there are there any things that just delighted you about the episode? I mean, I love when when Chidi says, "My brain is broken." And that's uh, <laughs> right, and that's and when he decides, like, I'm just going to decide and decide. And he tells Henry that. Henry just said that he wanted to get in shape and and Henry said, great, I'm going to do it. And the next, the next scene is he's in the hospital in full traction. And I love the interactions between Chidi and Henry. Always love that. So yeah, that's, those are definitely the ones that always make me laugh when I see them. I I thought this was just like the best use of an MRI machine. First, as in the way that that they corner Chidi in the machine in order to like Eleanor and Simone both to talk to him about asking Simone out. I don't think I've ever mm-hmm. seen anything quite like that in the rom com universe. And and then I thought this is must have been so much fun in the writing room when they toward the end when everybody's looking at the machine before they're going to start and each of their reactions to it, how Jason relates it claustrophobia to Santa Claus. And, oh, the uh, Jewish. The Jewish, the Jewish. 
Eleanor is losing her virginity in a home tanning machine, and and Tahani's Nicole Kidman's cryogenic chamber. Mm-hmm. Was really, I bet they had a bunch of stuff written up on the walls, you know, as alternate jokes for that. I'm sure. Well, and the and the puns, and it's and I know I know Megan Amram, who's one of the writers, writes a lot of the puns. But when Chidi is going to buy the blueberry muffin, and it's we crumb from a land down under. <laughs> I don't know about you. I was always a Men at Work fan. Mm-hmm. One of my kids just, I think, mentioned one of the songs or something. I'm like, that is from when I was your age. Totally. Totally. A little younger. I thought the the blurb on the TED-ish talk that Tahani gives after she comes back from the monastery with her book, and it's got a blurb from Malcolm Gladwell, where he says he's <laughs> going to quit writing because he couldn't do it as well as this book. And, and Cormac, McCarthy, Cormac McCarthy wrote, ditto. <laughs> the Tahani stuff around her Buddhist retreat and whatever, her recounting of her year of, of teshuva. I like how she said she gave her clothes to goodwill, which is what she calls Prince William. <laughs> because he married a commoner who would know some needy people. And then she does this thing with her head, this sort of tilt of her head, which is so earnest. And Eleanor She's looks at her like, oh. And I love the names that, that and it's always been been amazing of the names that Michael comes up with, of Zach Pizzazz. And I, and, and I, Jason's line, of, my year started about a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> And there, there, might, there weren't any signs, that, any other notices that you had on it. <laughs> on Tahani's phone, when she's talking about the uh, the celebrity contacts that she's deleting from mm-hmm. her phone, and you see the T's on her screen, which start with Taylor Swift, and she's talking about the edge, and then it goes the, so it's obviously T for the, the edge, the queen, the rock. Yeah, I mean, they have a really nice job on the official podcast, too, they talk about that the smartest, dumbest show on television, the dumbest, smartest. I can't remember which way it goes, but it's really smart. And they're just phenomenal, stupid jokes. <laughs> I was noting uh, the doorman. I was trying to figure out what it is about the doorman. And I realized that my beloved great uncle Morris, of blessed memory, had both the look of the doorman and also the kind of sweet energy. So I think I'm sort of mm-hmm. resonating to that. And from a Jewish angle, I'm loving what they've done with frogs. And uh, this is not incredibly profound, but in the Torah, the frogs are the second of the 10 plagues in Egypt, the swarms of frogs, which, you know, I think would be incredibly gross and scary. But for anybody who's had uh, children around a a Passover Seder, frogs is like the best thing. You can make little Mm -hmm. frogs, the kids can play with frogs, just sing songs about them. It's a great turnaround for frogs in Judaism. So I love that the doorman loves frogs and is so enchanted by anything. (laughs) There's a nice callback, I think, at the very end of the series about the frogs. Yeah. Well, Well, you can tell that there was a very deliberate reason related to Jeff, which you do that uh, that I wanted to do this episode together, which is kind of symbolized by the MRI machine and Simone's mm-hmm. involvement. But it's a good chance to talk about some of these things about the neuroscience of change. We have been talking about Rambam, which is the Hebrew acronym for the medieval rabbi Moses Maimonides. He comes up a lot as a kind of paradigm figure, partly because he's the one who codified in Jewish law and teaching how we think about tshuva, the actual guidebook about personal change by going back and returning and rebooting and redirecting. But really relevant here also because of, of who he was as both a rabbi and a scientist. Do you want to throw in anything about his background? He grew up in the Islamic community, which was really the center of a lot of Greek thinking and the revival of Greek thinking. And so he was very influenced by Greek thought and and Greek thinking was much more focused on science and sort of atomistic 
ideas and, you know, Chidi talks about Plato and Aristotle. And so Rambam really tries to integrate science as a way of thinking that didn't exist before that made it way back into to the Islamic communities. And so he, he's thinking about the role of the importance of knowing the world, knowing nature, knowing physics, and also knowing metaphysics and knowing philosophy and theology. And so he's become really one of the paradigms of the way people think about science and Judaism. So sometimes we set up these conversations as, you know, what is the good place set up as a way to approach an issue in personal change or development? And then what does Judaism say? And mm-hmm. and Maimonides' texts show up, you know, they're written in Hebrew and seem to derive from Talmudic language, but he is very infused and, as you say, Greek-derived knowledge, which just kind of flows through. So, so it won't look so much, I think, in our conversation here as two different languages. And mm-hmm. I did kind of want to, just to get us kicked off, to read this particular passage because I think it has some interesting touch points with the episodes that we're talking about today. So in his Hilchot Shuva, his teachings about return, this is chapter two, teaching four, he just lists some of the things that people do in order to, in a way to help themselves do tshuva. And he says, among the ways of tshuva that a person might do if they want to return is to cry out a lot before God with crying and with supplication, doing tzedakah, acts of monetary giving according to his capacity for doing that, trying to get far away from the thing which which he was tripped up by, which one is tripped up by, changing one's name as if to say, I am another person. I'm not that same person who did those other mm-hmm. deeds. Changing one's deeds, all of them to the better and to a straight path. And this is interesting, I think, for the episode and, and exiling oneself from one's place because exile or personal displacement helps to cleanse one of wrongs because it causes one to be more supplicative and humble mm-hmm. and low of spirit, which I thought, you know, particularly this idea of like, Australia, where did they come up with Australia? It's like, they should all go to Australia. <laughs> Chidi, if I'm recalling, was a professor of moral philosophy there. Yes. But when we first met Chidi, he was, you know, we know that he's from... From Senegal. <laughs> yeah. And that we knew in the good place everybody can speak, you know, in the original neighborhood, everyone was allowed to speak whatever language they did, but it all sounded intelligible. He knows lots of languages. He himself is sort of a person of many mm-hmm. places. And none of the rest of them are in any way except for the friends, like, as you say, Henry. <laughs> so it is interesting that they did choose a different place when they decided not to have that heavenly-ish place, a different place mm-hmm. on earth. Yeah. And there is some good research that hopefully still holds up. Being able to physically change your place does at least cause you to, to think at least a little bit differently. Act maybe, act maybe yes, maybe no, but people talk about the threshold effect that you actually, you remember things more where you are. And if you move, you're more likely to forget. Right now I'm in my dining room. And if I'm saying no, like I got to, I got to go to the, the kitchen. And if I go into the kitchen, like I'm going to, oh, like, wait, wait, why did I go? Why, why did I go into this room? Changing the space actually leads you to think a little bit differently. And there's some very robust research that we remember places much better than almost anything else. Hmm. They call it the, the, actually a method of loci that the people who really try to memorize things, they'll use either rooms in their house or a drive that they do. We're very, very ingrained. Uh, remember, we link places with memory. And that goes both ways. We remember things that we've been to. And when we sometimes move around, we forget other things. So interesting. So in a case where this group of people are trying to shift away from patterns, they are going to a different place 
in that sense would make a lot of sense. I think, you know, I would, I was, I'm curious what your impression is of Tahani's Buddhist retreat center, which I was thinking when I was looking at like, it is the most gorgeous place. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's a, a huge amount of evidence and research that when you, when you do something, when you contribute, you feel better. It's both pretty, again, pretty robustly backed up scientifically. And it's also pretty robustly backed up Jewishly give and you shouldn't give just to feel good, but giving does feel good. So, so there is something of the, the clarity and, and the value of trying to help people that's valuable. And at the same time, there's a professor of philosophy, professor of moral philosophy, actually, at Princeton named Peter Singer, who's mm. gotten some, you know, there's some pushback on him. There's some controversial ideas that he puts out. He's one of the, and there have been a few people who have pushed out what they call effective altruism. And what one of the things that, that he said, and only sort of in jest, said that actually, if you want to help the world, the best thing that you can do is become an investment banker and make hundreds of millions of dollars and live very simply and give that money away. Uh, Tahani, actually, the amount of money that she gives to charity and tzedakah, totally self-serving. But from a Jewish perspective, it's actually, there's there's a huge amount of value because the, the impact that she is putting out on this is greater than, you know, Jason giving, you know, a $5 bill. I mean, that, that'll be something that we'll see, I think, in The Ballad of Donkey Dog, which is one of my favorite episodes. Yeah. But, you know, the idea of wanting to cleanse herself, that also is a little bit of a self-serving act in my mind. Hmm. Really, you think in this episode, I mean, obviously, she's Tahani, so we get that. Obviously, what ends up with her tour, her, her book. Right, the Get Out of the Spotlight. Get Out of the Spotlight tour. <laughs> but the idea that she's going to renounce all the money and her worldly possessions, there's a tremendous amount of good that her resources can do. Right now, I was talking last night with my kids. So last night, I spent $10 on Mega Millions because the jackpot was $810 million. No one's gotten it. It's now up to $1 billion. I'm going to buy a little. And I was talking with my kids. I'm like, we're saying like, what would, what would you do with that amount of money? And I loved that my daughter said, first thing I do is I help. We could use that. We could give a lot of money to people in Ukraine and we could give a lot of money to Black Lives Matter. And my son said, yes, and we can give a lot to women's rights. And like, that's their thought, which is if we get a lot of money, there's a lot of good we can do. And that's the truth. I live live and die on donations. Your community lives and dies on donations. And there's a difference of private philanthropy versus taxes. I think there's a certain amount that needs to happen to the public good. I think that's, that should be a, a higher percentage. But to Honey, renouncing everything to try to work on herself, that's, I bristle at that a little bit. Yeah, you know, I, I was noticing about this episode that all the notions about the point system and the aggregate are not part of this episode at all. And, mm -hmm. you know, even Maimonides talks about, on the one hand, the balance of deeds in your life and in the world, which we talked about all the way back in episode one of this podcast. But also here, he's really working on the, the personal virtue part. And as is what's going on in this episode, which is just all about this group of people and their individual score, I guess, and how they're going to be assessed by the judge. And I, I agree with you. It's a frame that, that is certainly limited. There's not the whole picture of that. Mm -hmm. I was looking at this text partly as thinking about the question of transformations versus nudges. And because the original thought that Michael seems to have had is really the one that, that then Chidi articulates to Simone, which is the effect of near-death experience mm -hmm. on ethical decision-making. And each of them go through a significant period of time where that near-death experience has made a difference. 
But then it doesn't anymore. And Michael keeps having to go back down to earth and issue more nudges. And I was wondering whether these are the kinds of things that in Maimonides, they look like sort of dramatic, self-generated mm -hmm. acts. But the, if you could do these acts, you would hardly have to, you wouldn't need the, <laughs> you wouldn't need the dramatic things. Oh, and I have to say, by the way, that they definitely needed a Jewish advisor. Did you catch this? They use the word, when Michael is explaining to Janet kind of why he wants to go back down to earth, he says that he just wants to nudge the people. Oh, did you catch that? I didn't catch that. Although it's a little, yeah, it's more of a nudge than a nudge. It's nudge. Uh -oh. And in the subtitles, it says nudge. And uh, and I hope that people, gosh, I'm surprised, you know, with the, the handful of Jewish people, at least on the, the thing, like nudge is the opposite of a nudge. It's when you're like in someone's face, usually passive aggressively. Although to... he does nudge them. He talks to Chidi. He is a little too proactive sometimes with Eleanor, with all four of them, actually, right? Oh, like you think? But... I mean, it's so a nudge, at least the way that it's presented from Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, who are the people who created this idea. Their idea is what they call libertarian paternalism, which is that you want to create structures People have the choice of being able to do whatever they want to do, but there are structures to try to let people make the right decisions for themselves. A good example of, of a nudge, for example, is opt-in versus opt-out. When There's a checkbox where you've got to proactively say, yes, sign me up. And there's somewhere you've got to proactively click out. You can do whichever one you want. That's where the libertarian part comes in. But the paternalism is what's the structure that's created. The classic example of this is, is organ donation in, I can't remember, it's two Scandinavian countries. One of them has something like 80 or 90% organ donation. And one of them has something like 10 or 20%. And the difference is, which is the default? Is the default that you have to say, yes, I want to be an organ donor or, or is the other, no, I'm not going to be an organ. So Michael, like he's, you know, he's the one who's like, here's what you should do. The next person, some next time someone asks you for help, you should say, yes, hey, do you want to be part of this study in Australia? Going up to Jason throwing rocks. You know, it's one thing of a nudge would be putting those signs up for Jason to be able to see of like change your life next to the swamp stop. But I think he, he kind of nudges, like he nudges all of them to be able to be participate participants in the study. The reason I think of it as a nudge is that they like, I think what he does for Tahani is really a great twist, which is that he kind of fakes her out by saying, you know, I know that this is all a right. scam that you're running. And, and it it, without saying it to her face, you know, it mobilizes her desire not to do that. So when she gets the information or looks again at the information about the study and that she just wants to say, is this going to help people? And then when Chidi says yes, she's like, okay, I'm in. And nobody told her exactly to do that. It just helped her to do the thing she wanted to do already. It's, it's interesting though, the, you know, this question, will it help people? And, and the answer at, the, at this point, that the, the real answer is, I don't know. But that's, mm -hmm. Science is, you don't know if this is actually going to help people. Being part of a scientific study is helpful. Having the data is helpful, but not in the way that Tahani is thinking. She wants to like, I give X amount of money and, and this happens in this world. Right? Philanthropy often is designed to be able to say, I'm giving this amount of money because I want to see this impact in the world. And that's, and that's really important. That's this idea of effective altruism. But a, a scientific study, there are a lot of scientific studies that go nowhere. That's part of the scientific process. It is helpful to participate to be able to give that data, but it may not, you know, cure cancer. Mm -hmm. Right? If you participate in a double-blind medical study, you are going to help other people down the road, but you don't know if your drug is going to help or not. And you're saying that the process of just participating, if the drug doesn't help, the research at least will help down the road, you know, the next. Right. Yeah. Is there something, is there some science, neuroscience or any other science to back up this idea of nudges in a way, this kind of indirect 
interventions or these, you know, deliberate but not quite palpable to the person who's being affected? And, you know, is there something that works about them or that doesn't work about them? So that's that's an open question. I want to, I also want to, and this is an important piece from the episode of distinguishing neuroscience versus psychology. Neuroscience tends to be a bigger word and carries more weight because the word sciences is, is in there and neuro is in there. But neuroscience is helpful to be able to get a sort of broad senses of the way the brain works, but it doesn't really help us understand psychology that much of why people act in the way that they do. In psychology, there are pieces that are very well supported, but there's been a lot of work in psychology that is, they're calling it the replication crisis. And they've existed this for the last few years of all these wonderful psychological studies that I used when I would give sermons that informed the writers there for the good place. They're finding the effects are much smaller than we thought. Uh, the sample size was much smaller, right? That's one of the problems I actually have with this with this episode is that they present it as we're going to do this as a scientific study, and the sample size is four, mm-hmm. like that's or five. Ultimately. Yeah. Like that's, that is not going to be a a publishable paper. That is that is there's that's why you that's why you have, you, there's so much noise that's here. So people are going to be nudged in the way they already kind of want to be nudged. There's always a the moment and that what happens in the moment that it happens, right? If you think about what is the best advice you ever got, I would be willing to bet. And for all your listeners too, if you think about what's the best advice you ever got, it probably was not something that deep. And it probably was not something that was so unique. It happened to be the right thing said to you at the right time in your life that then got you in the trajectory where you're going. So it's both what's said, their advice is valuable, but it's valuable and it, and it motivates only when you're ready to be able to hear it, ready to act on it. So that's why the nudge that Michael does is good. It gets them a little bit, but they revert back to their old ways because it's it wasn't long lasting because and, of who they were as personalities. And and what Michael's able to do, I guess, is to discover that and think about what other nudges can I give. And I think that the Jason track is really particularly interesting because Jason after he emerges from the suffocation chamber, <laughs> does have this sort of immediate, as you're saying, like as re- like can say out loud to to Pillboy, like this this isn't what I want, and this you know wants to change from this life of crime and has dreams, and you know gets pretty quickly toward this idea of the dance competition, and is really good at that. It just doesn't doesn't win, and gets disappointed. Then that's when Zach Pizzazz <laughs> shows up and helps point him. When he gets to that that next point, because he hasn't lost, you know, it's still kicking around in him. And I guess the idea that Michael has is that, you know, I'll do a couple nudges, and then when they get to Australia, that'll sort of take over. And the, you know, maybe mm-hmm. even the MRI experiment is itself a nudge, because I think the point isn't really whether they can publish the paper, but whether by their being together, they'll have some cosmic effect on their own points. Well, that's what that's what Michael wants to do, but at least within the, the context of, of what Simone and Chidi are trying to do, they they think this is going to be a publishable paper. They want it to be a publishable paper. Um, I don't know how I don't know if they have academics. I mean, I know they have a couple of philosophers on there. I don't know if they have people in the academic world and then the universities who are actually, you know, understand the ins and outs of, of how universities work. <laughs> Maybe they'll assign this to one of their undergrads to write the initial paper while they work on a more dramatic, totally. a more dramatic thing. So are you saying that in what we know uh, psychologically that nudges are not a long-term uh, effect? Yeah. from And I don't know enough of the most recent research on this, but nudges 
nudges tend to work for a short period of time and having structures can be helpful also to be able to, to deal with. But but nudges, like you got to keep nudging and nudging and nudging and nudging and nudging and nudging. If anybody has kids, I noticed this, right? I, I have told my kids, let's see, they're almost nine and almost seven at this point. So at least a thousand times of <laughs> bring your water bottle from sleep to, right? I think I've said it at least at least once a day, maybe twice a day, every day for three years. I think a thousand is, a, is, a, is an, under, it's an understatement. And I still have to say it all the time. Like, oh, right. I have to remember to do that. But there are also things like having a picture or, or you know, having a checklist. You know, there are ways in which the nudges can, can help, but, they, but they're not necessarily a long-term strategy. We think about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and... We list all of the sins. We say, and we list all of these different things. And you know what? We probably committed the same sins the previous year. And you know, we're probably going to commit the same sins the next year. And some of that is, there is at least value in being able to, to, the the repetition is really helpful. It's also a way of of comparing of where where you were in the previous year to where you are in, in the next year. And Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, one of my favorite editorial cartoons was two people walking on a street corner. And one was holding up a big placard that said, rejoice, today is the first day of the rest of your life. And coming from the other said, repent, today may be your last day. <laughs> and and there, it was called the philosophical showdown. And, and Rosh Hashanah, it's the first day of the rest of your life. It's, it's a renewal, it's rebirth. And Yom Kippur is designed to be a day that reminds us of our death. We read Unatana Tokev on both. We read, we dress like a shroud. We, we don't do anything that, that is that's physical. We don't eat or drink or, or have sex or you know anything that's, that's that's physical there. And so being able to say, this is a rehearsal for your death. How is this going to impact you now? And then being able to say, All right, and now is the moment I need to act. You need both of those things to be able to create any kind of change. Yeah, and they do work together. And I'll, I'll repost again a sermon from Rabbi Sharon Browse that I think laid out in a wonderful way a number of years ago, this idea of the near-death experience without actually having it, that you're saying that Yom Kippur, mm-hmm. Yom Kippur is. And it's fascinating in this episode that the near-death experience is good enough for six months, it seems like, of change for every right. person, but not but not more. And I wonder if there have been studies, not neuroscience like, like Simone, but what happens as a result of that. I was thinking about stuff that I learned in education and the psychology of development and moral development. And there were a couple of thinkers, and I haven't boned up lately to know whether they're still current. There was a Russian psychologist named Lev Vygotsky who talked about the zone of proximal development, which mm-hmm. is that at, certainly for, for developing brains, there's sort of a next phase that you can mm-hmm. learn. And that, and he had this idea, I don't know if it was his language of scaffolding, that that you can be in an environment or a structure, the way you put it, that would help you just get to the next thing attainable for you. But if you were given a learning task or an ethical idea that was just too far beyond, it would just, it's as if you didn't see it at all. And there was this really interesting research in the development of the way people talk about moral dilemmas from a psychologist named Lawrence Kohlberg, which tried to pinpoint these ideas. And he would set up these classroom situations where where people would encounter, often from their peers and not just their teachers, different ways of thinking. If you ask the question in just the right way, kids would start to say things that would cause them to be the nudge. It wasn't mm-hmm. the direct argument, but it was the it was sort of the the way in which it helped people jump into a next phase of development. And my own teacher, Earl Schwartz, did look at Kohlberg as a way of trying to take some ideas from Maimonides and make them more sophisticated. And uh, we were actually practiced on in, in our Hebrew school as, uh, in this kind of moral dilemma discussion. And that's one of the reasons, actually, I liked the way that GD articulated as the effect of near-death experience on ethical decision-making. I think it's 
ethical if I remember yeah ethical decision I think is oh, uh, yeah maybe the thinking part of it but wholesale changes are not the usual way mm-hmm. we work we can't make the changes that are attainable to us without these variety of things and and I I looked at that text that I brought from Maimonides as one of a possible laundry list of things that one could try to do or even provide for other people mm-hmm. and knowing that that's and that's I think in the season we we get a lot about not just how can I work on my own development but what can I do to contribute even when I'm pretty sure I can't grow anymore what can I do for someone else we talk about this in a lot of different contexts about character development of how all four of them develop over time. And we also develop over time. And I don't think we can, in the same way, we can't pinpoint one moment in the show where like they were bad and now they're good. Mm-hmm. But like we see, like we see the struggle as they slowly, slowly, slowly get better. And then you look back on them a few seasons later and, and it's like, wow, they've really changed. Look back on them on for the first season in the same way that we, we don't necessarily look back and say like, okay, that was the moment when I was a jerk and now I'm a good person. But and then, by the way, there is no moment when you're a good person. It's always, it's a constant struggle and, and different situations come up in different kinds of ways. But some of that is how do we look back and say, here's how I've changed over time. And I like about this episode that they that they throw out the near-death experience, the ethical philosophy on the wall. There's one scene where you see Epicureans are up on the blackboard yeah. and stuff like that when they're talking. We don't really actually study the philosophy, but we know that he and Eleanor are doing it. We have these nudges which are more or less direct and they're they're kind of all in the in the mix. And of course the group, which is what we'll explore in the next few episodes, then mm-hmm. which was they haven't even really gotten to that when they're uh, you know, this episode just really tees it up. The, once again, the idea of being a group, all the ingredients for moral development, not just nudges and near death experiences are here in the episode. One of the things that I loved was when Zach Pizzazz, Michael, has the conversation with Jason, and it seems to finally have an effect on Michael in a certain way. And he talks about, I used to rep this group called the Demons. And yep. <laughs> and then he, he says they did bad stuff. And then I met new friends who helped me become a better person. And there was mm-hmm. this pause. And I'm not sure if Michael has used the word person to describe himself, but I also don't know whether Michael has articulated, like he's talked about, we could do better, like the afterlife could do better when he's pitching Sean last season. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he's ever talked to, like explicitly said, I'm, I value becoming better or a better yeah. person. I thought that was so sweet. And in the second season too, of the, of the growth that he has also, and that's, you know, of what does that mean? What does better look like? And I think that's, there's a difference between good versus better. And I wish I could remember the Hasidic rabbi who said it, but it, but if you're not better today than you were yesterday, what do you need tomorrow for? Hmm. And I think it's, it's something along those lines. Each day is just a slightly, slightly bit better. And there are these wonderful reminders in the episode of how they far had left to go. I love when Chidi bursts into Simone's office with his epiphany about the study. <laughs> and there's the student in there and uh, Reginald. I love how they just really go full-on American stereotypes of the, the British Commonwealth and uh, yep. why, why did you come here? <laughs> and he was talking about because his grandma died and he wasn't going to be able to come to class and Eleanor right. just glares at him. A real mood ruiner. <laughs> Dude, read the room. Read the room. Yeah. <laughs> so it gives us some growth to look forward to. Totally, totally. Is there anything else you want to throw in on any of these topics? Uh, the only thing that, that we didn't get to talk on, and we talked about this a little bit before we went on air, was the challenge of being able to frame it like it, it is it is not a particularly good scientific study. I think that there is a danger of, you know, when when we said when Chidi says there's real answers in here. 
Um, and, and that's one of the things that we put a little too much stock in what neuroscience can actually say and can actually do. There's a professor named Rebecca Sachs who's done some great work on what are the limitations of neuroscience? What are we able to say and what are we not able to say? And being able to, to say information is always good, but it's not necessarily going to give us answers. And I think that's something that's helped guide me a little bit. Yeah, I'm really glad that you said that. I think that Simone is such a, an intriguing and positive character, such an interesting character who we like so much. I mean, she's mm-hmm. she's got such a different energy. It's a joy to be. Yeah, and we will see that she really does push this idea that her way has better answers, and in a way, saying to Chidi, like, look, look what your way is getting you to. It's making you, right. it's making you crazy and not getting you anywhere. But I do already feel this sense of like, yeah, it's a shiny new toy, but like all the other things in the show, we're going to realize it can do its job, but it can't do the whole job. And we're saying for both science and religion, what are the what are the limitations that we have? All right, well, Jeff, it's great to talk to you and to kick off the season with you. Thank you. Love being on here. It's a great show, and and thank you for hosting such a wonderful podcast. And you too. Thank you for hosting. And thank you for listening and helping us bring Tove into a new season of The Good Place. If you've listened all the way to the end of this episode, hopefully that means you're getting something out of the podcast. And you can help us reach new people by subscribing, by sharing on social media, or just telling people about us. You can find show notes with texts and terminology and deeper dives on our website, tovegoodplace.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at tovegoodplace, and talk to us or each other there, or write us at tove at tovegoodplace.com. I'm John Spira Savet, and you can find me online at rabbijs3 or on rabbijohn.net. And you can check out the live and virtual offerings from Temple Beth Abraham in Nashua, New Hampshire at tbanashua.org. Jeff Middleman is at Rabbi Middleman, one T. And also go to sinaiandsynapses.org, where you can find Jeff's blog posts and interviews with all kinds of people bridging science and religion. Thanks again for listening. Now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.